This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers show number 42, recorded on January 8th, 2018. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. If you have a question, comment, or contributions, you can always contact us. Send us an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. You can send that guy, uh, well, actually, he's down here. You can send Christian an email, christian at theaverageguy.tv, or find me on Twitter at Jay Collison, and Christian is Borg Whisperer. Christian, I still dig that. I think that's a pretty name. awesome Twitter name. Yeah. Our great era. Yeah. Is that is that a callback? Is that a, uh, that's got to be a Star Trek callback right uh yeah actually it is um humorously i was trying to do a play on uh there's a trend out here now on data lore i saw someone wearing the t-shirt not too long ago um but all permutations of such names have long since been squandered in the twitter lexicon of usernames so we ended up with borg whisper i like it i like it so uh track twitter down there or track track question (laughs) can't even talk (laughs) twack question down there if you want to uh if you need a or if you got a suggestion for a show we always love to hear from you christian at the average guy.tv don't forget the average guy.tv powered by <laughs> upgraded maple grove partners web hosting you'll probably talk about that get secure reliable high-speed hosting for people that you know and you trust for more information visit maplegrovepartners.com and plans start as low as ten dollars a month for everything christian uh, did you get any jingle? Do we get any jingle folks? There's lots we- of jingle magic. Uh, yeah. We haven't seen lots of jingle folks yet. Take advantage of the code. Humorously, people have ordered without the code. What are you doing? Got to listen to the show. <laughs> um, order with promo code jingle. It's good through January 30, 30th, I believe. So, yeah. Or we say when it's over. Yeah. Yeah. But jingle. For now, January 30th. Good. All right. Get out there and get it ordered. Christian, during. Last week, maybe the most fundamental breakdown in security, maybe of all time, as we think of what's how it's gone on. I'm going to let you explain it, but we got a serious problem in our hands. I don't hear the news. I mean, I I, I hear little whispers of it, but it's not certainly treated like this is a big deal, and yet it is. So, why don't we uh, Why don't we just dive right into it? Yeah, so we're in day six or seven here of the coverage on uh, two major vulnerabilities that attack the fundamental understanding of kind of CPU security, kernel security, operating system security. And the thing that's so notable about what happened this week is the types of vulnerabilities that have been disclosed have several attributes. Number one, they're a just a whole new attack vector and a strategy of attack that has not been practiced in cybersecurity before, um, and especially not to the extent that we're seeing here. Number two, not only is it a novel um, attack mechanism, but it, like you mentioned earlier, affects every single physical hardware chip um, CPU that has been made in the last 20 plus years. So really there is no other vulnerability I can think of in in memory of modern uh, history that touches every single architecture and CPU and every single computer. You know, we've talked about how different attacks and attack types have different surface areas, but in this case, the surface area literally legitimately is every single thing that has silicon in it, whether it's your phone, your computer, et cetera. Um, and it's, what's worse about it is it's not like it's a flaw in software or flaw in someone's operating system. 
it is a flaw that exists all the way down at the hardware level. So when US CERT, which is the Center for Emergency Response Team out of Carnegie Mellon, that's sponsored by the Department of Homeland Security, when US CERT put out their assessment that there is no fix for this except to replace your CPU, um, that is a correct statement, meaning there is no permanent long-term fix that fully fixes the issue without redesigning the CPU and putting it in your computer. That just goes to show you what a fundamental, very basic understanding that has been shattered in how we've operated with computer security um, for for decades now. Uh, With that being said, this uh, vulnerability has been being worked on. It was primarily discovered by Google's uh, Project Zero team and several academic researchers, um, one of whom includes a University of Maryland postdoctorate fellow from um, the Cybersecurity Center. Um, However, all of these folks have been basically that the two academic papers behind these vulnerabilities, this research has been ongoing through a big part of 2017. So um, we're finding out about the news now at the beginning of 2018. So it seems like this big splash in 2018, but um, from the reports that are out there, um, kernel developers and otherwise have been under embargo about this for months because of what a wide scale impact it has and have been working a little bit ahead of the clock of the public disclosure to try and put mitigations in place, right? So Google's um, Project Zero team, they have a very hard line kind of 90-day disclosure window. That's what you get. There's really no negotiations with them. It's 90 days and you're out. So um, that put Intel on notice. Um, Originally, I say Intel because it was believed that this predominantly affected all Intel CPUs. Initially, AMD and ARM came out and said, oh, this doesn't affect us or our architecture. Well, it turns out AMD was partially right. One of the two major vulnerabilities does not impact AMD processors because of the way they design their chips. Um, however, the second one, which is arguably the more scary and dangerous one that will be haunting us for years potentially, um, affects every single CPU, whether it's Intel, AMD, or ARM. ARM is the CPU platform that's predominantly in your iOS and your Android devices. So that covers the gamut of your mobile phones and and mobile devices. Um, You have AMD, which is very much an enthusiast gaming, some enterprise, but not a whole lot, and desktop environments. And you have Intel. um, And especially notable about Intel is not just its market saturation, but the fact that all of our primary cloud technologies, um, AWS, Azure, Google, et cetera, all run Intel CPUs. You're not going to find something on the cloud that is running on an AMD CPU. It's just not where the industry is. So this, in many respects, has had a major impact on the cloud more than it has anywhere else when we talk about comparing an individual user versus a cloud computing environment. Um, And it's important to note that while this is really a fundamental issue and we're, we haven't even gotten into it yet. I'm just giving you kind of the context of what we woke up into in the first week of the new year here. Um, it's important to note that as of kind of this show, there's no indications from any of the enterprise vendors that these vulnerabilities have actually been successfully used yet or that people are aware of them. Uh, the level of sophistication involved in these attacks is significant 
hence why they're such fundamentally game-changing things. It's not like it was something easy that just popped up overnight or we would have discovered it a long time ago. Um, so the two attacks I'm going to outline tonight are known as Meltdown and Spectre. Um, Spectre is kind of short for um, speculative, and we're going to get uh, into what it means to be uh, have a processor that does speculative execution. Um, and both of both of these attacks, both Meltdown and Spectre, um, take advantage of this concept of speculative execution in, in excuse me in CPUs. And it's also important to note that um, these are features that are good things in CPUs. They're things that have accelerated the performance and the viability of parallel computing design uh, for several years now. Unfortunately, they weren't done in a secure way, um, and because of how much our fundamental computing relies on these things, it's going to be really interesting to see how we go back and bake in security that was missing. Uh, does that make sense? What did I miss, Jim? Yeah, no. Is it? And when we think about for sort of the average user, I've you know I got a Core i7 sitting in front of me here. I got a Core i3 sitting next to me. Are those? They're all in the list. Oh uh, yeah. Do, yeah. Do I need to? I mean, what do I need to do now? And maybe we'll talk to yeah. you about it a little bit later. But I mean. Is it something, I, anything I need to do, or is this going to get taken care of for me? And and maybe we'll bring that up as we move along. Yeah, so we're going to, uh, super important for user awareness, we're going to discuss mitigations for the average guy on this show. There are things you, the user, need to be looking out for and making sure you're doing to make sure that you're protected from this, especially now that the disclosure is out there. This, this smells very much like some of the unfortunate things that have happened with ransomware, which is new ransomware exploit gets out. It was totally preventable if you had done the proper mitigations and patches, but because you didn't, you got hosed. Um, so there's nothing out in the wild yet, but I did plenty of source code reading last night on the internet. There are plenty of people actively writing stuff out there. Uh, and and some of it is just for proof of concept, not necessarily be malicious. The point is there's a bunch of people who know how this stuff works now. And it's, in my estimation, only a matter of time before someone attempts to launch this as a, a nasty thing you don't want to be a part of. Yeah. And uh, we'll have great show notes. Christian really worked hard on the show notes this week. So make sure you go over to theaverageguy.tv slash CF043, I think is what I said, or 42. Sorry, 42. And uh, they'll be they'll be listed there. Let's let's go with the rundown, Christian. Let's get some details. Okay, awesome. So, two types of vulnerabilities were disclosed. We're going to focus on the first one, which is called the meltdown vulnerability. This is the vulnerability that predominantly impacts Intel CPUs, and is why the Intel stock took a seven percent. Or I don't know what the exact nosedive was. I know AMD shot up about seven percent or so when this first day of news came out. Um, so meltdown it is predominantly focused on Intel CPUs. And you can get the technical paper that was written by the academic and Google team out at meltdownattack.com forward slash meltdown.pdf. They put two websites up for each attack. One's meltdownattack.com, one's specterattack.com. Spectre is S-P-E-C-T-R-E.com. Anyway, we're going to focus on Meltdown first. So I'm going to explain this in a semi-technical way, and then I'm going to give you an analogy. I found that it was the analogy that helps people kind of codify in their head what I'm really saying. And it's uh, an analogy that was done on the Verge podcast a couple of days ago that I thought was really well done. So I'm going to reuse it here and attribute it as a thanks for posting that and uh, having a good analogy over there out at the Verge. Um, so Meltdown 
deals with a CPU feature known as out-of-order execution. So when we talk about how software runs on a computer, everything is linear. There's something called a program counter that keeps track of where the CPU is in executing a a set or a series of source code lines, right? Software developers write source code that gets put into a compiler, creates compiled language. With source code though, it's linear, meaning like you can think of the way a computer executes things as being entirely linearly, meaning it has to do this before it can do this. That's the very basic notion. Now, over the years, as processor technology has improved, we've basically found ways to quote unquote, cheat the system of computing linearly, meaning we've put optimizations into the processor so that we get parallel computing and so that we can execute things in parallel that were originally meant to be sequential. And what this basically allows us to do is A, accelerate single threaded applications. Um, You've heard about threaded applications that take advantage of having multiple threads and multiple cores. That's not what we're talking about here, right? So, So the types of optimization technologies that exist in the CPU, we're thinking of it from the most simple notions, which is you have a series of source code lines that make up a program running on your computer, and those things have to be executed sequentially. And there's a program counter that literally is an integer that increments as it's going through different lines of code. And that's what allows the CPU to know what line of code it's it's currently executing or operating on, right? So when we think about CPUs from a basic average guy notion, think of sequential execution, right? So the feature that is at the core of the meltdown vulnerability is called out of order execution. So how modern processors really work in contrast of the picture I just painted for you is they try and execute ahead of where the program counter really is. So what this means is, if I have a if statement and an else statement, right? And my if statement says to do this one thing, and if that condition is failed, it goes to the other thing. The CPU might try and jump ahead by executing, while it's working on executing what's in the if block, it's also executing what comes after that if block or what's in that else block, right? So it's it's taking what is currently running and the CPU is meanwhile freaking out and looking at all the different parts of the code that it has complete resources for, meaning it knows all the values it needs to compute that particular thing. And that execution it's trying to do is happening in the future. So the CPU is basically trying to execute parts of your source code that have not yet existed in quote unquote, the present tense. So if you think of a source code program, like a timeline, the CPU in a sense is jumping in the future to execute parts of your code that it hasn't even gotten to yet. And so essentially it's doing that because it's anticipating that of all these things I managed to compute, your code is eventually going to pick one of them. So it's going to maybe try and execute 10 different things that it sees as possible places your source code might go. And when your program lands on one of them, it's going to already have the result for that one thing it landed on, and it's just going to discard the rest, right? So this is one of the notions of how processors sped up over the time is that compilers and the CPU in particular are very smart about knowing, okay, if all these sets of variables or memories initialized to do this set of instruction, even though I'm not there yet, I already have everything. I have all the prerequisite resources I need to get started. So what's really important about the description I just gave you is that 
out of order execution is a, from a programmer or a developer point of view, out of order execution is ephemeral, meaning it's totally transient. It totally has no visibility to the developer, to the user, et cetera. The whole idea here is the CPU is randomly picking targets for what it thinks could be the next thing it has to execute. And in reality, it's that one thing that is what your program is actually supposed to be, is actually going to get a result for. So what does the CPU do with those other nine things? It discards them it, it because your program never actually uses them. It's never part of your actual, what your program actually did. And the security model behind this is that those other nine results exist in a very privileged part of your computer that should never be accessible, should never be touched, should never physically exist, right? And what this attack does, it's called a side channel attack. And this is like, think about like someone holding up a, a megaphone to the wall in your room to try and hear something that's going on the other side of the room. And what it's what, what's happening here is we're holding up a megaphone inside your CPU listening for those other results of potentially potential things that were executed. And we're using that as a mechanism to gain access out of the user memory space into kernel memory space. Now, kernel memory space is the most protected part of your operating system. It literally is the fundamental, very privileged memory that runs your operating system. So if you as a user or your user program is suddenly able to escape into kernel memory, I can read all the privileged secrets about your computer. I can read all the passwords. I have the jewels and the keys to the kingdom, right? So this side channel attack, and, and I'm this is where I'm going to start to taper off the technical understanding, but basically the side channel attack is this concept of flushing and reloading the cache because when your CPU, your CPU has like, think about your computer, right? We have your, your disk, your hard disk, where you store your regular files and it's pretty fast now with SSDs, you have your memory or your RAM where things that need to be really fast for the program to do computations, it stores it in memory. And then you have your CPU. And on that CPU, there's something called registers. And each of those registers are designed to store very fast value. It's actually the fastest memory that exists in your computer. It's faster than your RAM. It's faster than your hard disk. It runs at like the speed of lightning, right? And these registers is where the CPU is trying to compu uh, make computations and, and create results for all the different possible things it sees as potentially being a result. So what ends up happening here is this side channel attack is basically listening to that cache and, and flushing those values out. And it's a pretty complicated serialization mechanism that they use, but they basically serialize it and mechanize it in such a way they take those privileged secret values that should have never been released and it gets, it gets pushed back into main memory. And once they get it once, they can use this to then eventually over time, read out and dump the entire, the entire contents of your memory, whether it's kernel or user. This is a total violation of how computer security is supposed to work. It's a total violation of the most privileged part of kernel security. And so it's really important to distinguish that out of order execution is not a flaw. It's the feature, it's the performance thing, but it's what enables this side channel attack to take place. Fortunately, believe it or not, as scary and complicated as that sounded, it's the easy one of the two vulnerabilities that were disclosed. This one is fully mitigatable. 
it's fully patchable. So what has happened here is operating system vendors have released a patch that properly isolates the kernel memory space from the user memory space, basically rendering this type of side channel attack um, unable, uh, you know, it, it fully mitigates the side channel attack from existing. So um, as far as meltdown is concerned, uh, some of the operating system patches and and stuff we're going to talk about for what to do as the user, fully mitigatable for meltdown. But this is super scary, right? Because um, this is one of those things where at least for this first one, we're very lucky that it actually is fully patchable in software because um, the other one isn't. And that's where we're going to start to talk about some of the longer term trends. Um, before I get to questions and before I even get on to the next one, I want to recharacterize everything I just said using the analogy from Verge because I think this will give a very average guy spin on it. So think of it, and this is a very bizarre analogy. I didn't come up with it, but hopefully it makes sense. So think of this as the bank heist analogy. So we're in a science fiction world where um, parallel universes exist, right? The whole concept of parallel universes is that there's a version of you doing a slightly different thing in each parallel world, right? So I'm the real you, you're the real Jim. So real Jim is going to rob a bank and he gets in his car, he drives to the bank and he walks up to the bank door and he has second thoughts about it and he decides not to go through with it. So that's what the real Jim did. He went up to the bank door and he's like, eh, you know what? I'm not really a thief, so I'm out. So he's kind of standing at the door rethinking his life. Meanwhile, in an alternate reality, other Jim comes by and he decides to go to, he goes up to the bank and he's like, yeah, I'm going through with this. So he goes in the bank, he, he takes people hostage and he runs to the bank vault. Now inside the bank vault exists, um, Christian's secret Netflix password. And, and this is where Christian stores his Netflix password so that no one else can log into his Netflix. He saves it in his bank. He only looks at it on paper. It's not stored anywhere else. So other Jim in this alternative universe makes it to the vault. But remember, as soon as I open the vault, there's a security guard waiting inside that vault who's going to shoot me dead on arrival. Like I'm not going to make it out of the bank. So as soon as I open that vault and read the piece of paper, the guard is going to shoot me. So in this parallel universe, other Jim makes it to the vault and reads the Netflix password out loud long enough just long enough before the guard shoots him. So in this parallel timeline, let's review what happened. Other Jim walks up to the bank, runs into the vault, screams out the Netflix password, and the guard shoots him dead. And that's the end of that reality. Now, back in the real reality, the, the real Jim has a secret listening device that he's holding up to the door of the bank. And he hears... The other Jim in that parallel universe screaming out the Netflix password. And so Jim never robbed the bank. And yet he heard what the password was from the guy in the parallel universe. And he goes about his day. So while Jim never actually robbed the bank in the parallel universe, because he did rob the bank, he was able to listen into that side channel and get the value and go on about his day. That is a... Hollywood version of what the meltdown vulnerability really is. I, I understand it. I mean, and I'm in it. That's great. That's the best part yeah. about it is that yeah. I'm in it. Can um, Christian. So as we think about devices, I mean, so if you said this is affecting all devices 
And we've always kind of considered phones as being pretty secure because yeah. they're, their OSs are different. Is are, do we are we going to need to treat these differently? Are, are the phones going to be patched differently? Yeah. Is Apple and Android going to have to issue patches patches just like Windows and Linux is going to have to? Right. So for the meltdown vulnerability, the thing I just described, yeah. this yeah. was the one that predominantly impacted Intel CPUs. So this one you won't see as much on. Uh, f- well, actually, several phones. So iOS already re- had a patch in eleven point two that mitigated this. So. It was predominantly Intel CPUs, uh, but these patches, um, there's, especially for the second vulnerability, which is what literally impacts everything, and we're only talking about mitigations, not real fixes here, um, but those, the combination of instructions I'm going to give at the end on how to mitigate this will cover what Android's doing, what Apple's doing, what Microsoft is doing, what the cloud platforms are doing, what the Linux community is doing. But yeah, essentially the end of the day, we're talking about for both of these vulnerabilities, I'm just going to wrap it up. We're talking about a combination of firmware or BIOS updates, software updates, CPU replacements. Um, it's the whole gamut. Um, that's It's like a full spread of stuff that has to happen to be immunized. And keeping in mind that the first vulnerability I described will be fully fixed when you do those things. The second one, eh, not so much, but that's what we're about to get into. Okay. So second type of vulnerability is known as the specter vulnerability. And this really is the one that is going to haunt us potentially for years to come. It is also the one that is fully demonstrable from a web browser, meaning at the end of the day, we're talking about all this low level, sophisticated CPU hardware stuff, but I can write some malicious JavaScript that does this type of vulnerability. And that's pretty scary because that gives you the kind of the real world explanation of how people could eventually make this into a remote code exploit and use it to take control of um, reading the contents of memory in your computer. So Spectre is a little bit different. Um, When we talk about out of order memory execution, which is predominantly associated with meltdown, um, it's, you know, you can think of out of order as a type of speculative execution, but um, the type of speculative execution in the specter vulnerability deals with a different type of CPU feature called branch prediction. And this is something that is really fundamental to how CPUs have sped up over the last, gosh, three to five years easily, but I mean, even longer than that. So again, going back to the if else statement that we talked about earlier, branch prediction is this concept that when your computer is doing a task repeatedly, like think of like a while true loop. So your computer just keeps doing and 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 doing the same exact thing, the same exact task until a condition is met. So um, basically um, email Jim a hot dog until Jim is full. Um, That's the while condition, right? So um, what is notable about branch prediction is that it essentially looks at what that if else condition is that you're checking repeatedly and it learns over time like hey ah like 90 to 95 percent of the time this if statement always turns out to be true so the next time i have to evaluate it i'm just going to assume it's true and then if it's not i'm going to back out so so basically the cpu is computing ahead the subsequent results of that repetitive task where your 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 conditional keeps saying it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. 
um, expecting that it's going to get a bunch of future results that you're actually going to use. And then when it realizes that all of a sudden, oh, gym is full, it doesn't need anything more. It discards the future mail orders of hot dogs that were going to go to Jim's house like they just never existed, right? So um, what the specter vulnerability takes advantage of is this very fundamental concept of branch prediction. So um, one of the features of branch prediction is that it, it tries to guess the destination of memory addresses that are used in an attempt to jump ahead and, and execute that, that task. That's basically what we just talked about. Um, and what's notable though about this, and this is different from out of order memory execution because out of order execution, even though the thing may never get done, like we talked about the nine things get discarded and only one is actually done with with the specter vulnerability, it actually forces your computer to speculatively compute a result that would be illegal to compute in your program. Meaning like it never ever could even possibly happen. Whereas with out of order memory execution, it's one of a thousand possible things that could have happened. With this type of transitive speculative execution, um, the way the attacker has control of its own user program, it actually forces the computer to compute a result that is just like quite frankly totally illegal and was never intended um and it what it's doing is it's tricking the processor into speculatively executing the instruction sequence that should never have executed right so so the easy way to think of this is and they they talk about a couple different ways that you can make a processor illegally compute something that doesn't exist. Um, and this conditional branch loop is one of the easier to understand techniques for what Spectre is really doing. Um, so let's go back to this case where I have a, an if statement that's constantly being evaluated as true in a while loop. And I'm the attacker. And, and this is one big thing to note as a difference between Meltdown and Spectre um, before I get into this is that Spectre is limited to process memory, meaning like the thing that you're trying to hack exists in your little bubble of I'm the program, I'm the attacker's program, or I'm the real program, but you can't basically escape out into kernel memory right away, right? You're you're basically stuck in your little bubble. Whereas with uh, Meltdown, you're eventually jumping over and getting into kernel memory space, and that's a really bad place to be. But with um, Spectre, you're basically you have, you know, your program has control of its own memory. It's not going into kernel memory. So it's like we're in two different memory spaces, the user or program memory space versus the super privileged kernel memory space. Um, now, when we talk about uh, going back to Spectre here, we're talking about how do we exploit these conditional branches, right? So we're taking advantage of the fact that we know the processor is seeing like, okay, 95% of the time this thing evaluates to true. I'm just going to keep computing future results. Now, all of a sudden, the attacker, um, let, let's say you're reading contents from a list. Think of like a list of items on your desk, like or like the alphabet. I read A, then I read B, then I read C, then I read D. And I, I do this all the way until I get to Z, right, in a loop. So I'm a teacher, I'm in a classroom, I'm reading the alphabet to my students in a loop, A, B, C, D, and, and I'm currently reading X to my students in real life. But in the world of the CPU, the CPU has already started reading W, X, Y, 
And so it's, it's calculating off into the future, right, to complete this set. Now, I, the attacker, am controlling what letter am I currently on? Like I'm currently on C, then I'm on D, et cetera. So while this computer is going off on a horse race to try and compute the future results in that sequence of letters, I suddenly tell my computer at that memory address, hey, JK, I want to read a letter that exists past Z. I want to read Z1. Well, Z1 isn't a valid thing in our alphabet, right? But I just told the computer to try and read it. So Z1 is an illegal instruction because it doesn't physically exist. Yet because I am the user, I got to tell my computer, hey, read this illegal memory address, right? And so in real life, what does the computer do? In real life, when the computer gets there, it says, whoa, wait a second, like Z1, this isn't a valid thing you're trying to reference, and then it throws an exception. But in the world of speculative execution, the computer has no idea that Z1 is not part of your alphabet. So it just went and tried to compute that result for Z1. And Z1 points to a part of memory that doesn't exist in your alphabet. So all of a sudden, your computer has speculatively computed this thing that doesn't exist called Z1, and it's now pointing to a space in memory that has nothing to do with your program of reading the alphabet. Now, what's what's, and you're like, okay, well, so what? This is the part where it's the same side channel attack as what happens in Meltdown, right? We just, we're getting to it a very different way. So now... This Z1 is pointing to this memory space that I should have never been able to speculatively or transitively execute. And as a result, that illegal computation also exists in my computer's CPU cache, just like it did with out-of-order execution and meltdown, where it had 10 different results and nine of them, all 10 of them were in the CPU, but only one of them was valid. And the other nine were going to get blown up and never reappear. Same thing with Spectre, except it's run off on a horse race into a future. It tries to compute this non-existent thing Z1 that's not in my alphabet. And all of a sudden that invalid non-existent memory space is actually pointing to an entirely different application or entirely different thing. And that exists as an illegal result in your computer CPU cache. And just like before, it's a little bit of a different technique, but it's the same side channel attack. I take Jim's magic megaphone from the bank and I hold it up to that cache and I hear, ooh, What's at that non-existent Z1 memory address? And it's something that has nothing to do with my computer, uh, computer's program. Um, what's worse is like with Meltdown, right? The idea here is that the cache properly reverts its state, meaning it blows away those nine other results in theory if, if you're you know properly isolated and it does it in time, et cetera. But with Spectre, what basically happens is the cache is not properly reverting um, the, the value that gets written when the processor realizes, oh shit, I just tried to speculatively execute something that was never legal to compute in the first place. And as a result, same side channel attack, I can do this repetitively over time with the branch, uh, the branch prediction and basically read your entire contents of memory, get all the same privileged things that we didn't want to have, right? Um, so again, primary differences between Meltdown and Spectre. Spectre is limited to your process memory, your individual program's memory. Meltdown accesses the kernel memory. We really don't want that. But don't let that fool you. If I have access to uh, 
your own programs memory and I can still get your secret password or secret whatever, I can probably figure out what my next way in. Not only have I stolen your secrets, like your bank account password, but I've also potentially figured out how I'm going to then own your computer to get everything. So it's really like, it's trying to compare apples and oranges in some place. They're both very serious, even though they're different privileged parts of memory. Um, Meltdown is fully mitigatable in the operating system with the patch that we're going to talk a little bit more about. Spectre is not. There is really, honest to God, no real fix for Spectre um, because it's indicative of the way processor architecture has been built for years. So this idea of branch protection is literally built into the silicon on the hardware on the CPU. So while we've come out with BIOSes and operating system updates and you know, all these different spectrum of mitigations, they are that they are mitigations, meaning it reduces the likelihood that you will speculatively execute an illegal result, but it does not guarantee that someone will not eventually be able to fool your computer's branch prediction into computing a speculative result that it can then get pushed out with a side channel attack. Um, this is the one that's really scary because again, um, we're talking about programming languages here, folks. I can do this in JavaScript and convince your computer's web browser to start speculatively executing results. Uh, and then lo and behold, I can use JavaScript to send me that result back over the internet. What a surprise. Um, so that one's a really scary one. Um, we've even seen vendors like Apple not only release operating system patches and firmware patches, but they've released patches for the browsers themselves to try and prevent the individual software applications from speculatively executing. So this just shows you everyone is like, oh crap, I'm naked. And we're, we're putting patches and clothing up wherever we see a naked spot. But the reality here is that like, we're literally just trying to cover up the problem and mitigate as much as possible. But this is the fundamental way CPUs are designed. So US cert is not wrong when it says the only real and true fix for this is to get a new CPU that doesn't have this problem. Um, and there you have the specter vulnerability. Does it um, with these patches or with this thought, I've, I've seen some, uh, some performance uh, discussions that are going on. Yeah. Are we seeing, because certainly now we have to add an operation on top of an operation to right. guard the operation from doing harmful things. What Talk a little bit about that. Exactly. So you brought up one of the biggest side effects. Not, not only have we just talked about the gamut of security implications and how this fundamentally um, breaks security, but now we're also talking about performance, which is, okay, we put all these mitigations in place to basically try and cripple branch prediction and out of order execution from going off and doing these these things that help us and restricting the ways in which it can help us well guess what when you restrict the things that make your computer's performance better in certain ways your computer's performance is going to get worse so it's no surprise um of course everyone is there's a lot of hand waving going on right now for what the actual performance impact is. And, and the truth is, it depends on the type of workflow and the type of computation that you're doing. Um, really depends on what the severity of the performance impact is. Um, we've seen reports anywhere from 5% to 30% being the range of performance impacts that can happen on, um, on, your, on your CPU and on your given application and workflow. So when you take that in holistically, 
that's like we just turned the clock back several years on CPU um, architecture and design purely from a performance standpoint, not talking about we've built CPUs fundamentally for years that have this type of inherent security flaw in them. Um, this is where it like we don't necessarily for your average desktop, I'm sitting doing emails, Internet, whatever, like not going to be a performance problem, right? Where we see the real world impact is A, in the cloud and B, in, you know, things like gaming, right? Like if you're playing a computer game, a lot of that stuff is happening, right? So that's a that's an example of where the average guy might see it. Uh, but the performance implications are huge for um, virtual virtualized environments and cloud environments. So your AWS, your Azure, your Google, your Hyper-V, your VMware, all those suite of things that you know, make up these great clouds that everyone uses, whether it's the Apple cloud or Netflix or whatever. Um, now we basically, you know, in, in some respects, um, we have to throw more hardware at it to get the same type of performance and scalability that we could do with um, maybe four fifths of the hardware previously. So again, a big, big uh, window of what people are reporting is actual performance impacts. Um, I actually did performance testing on uh, the Maple Grove platform because we obviously had to patch and respond to this in the same way everyone else did. And it was pretty interesting. Um, the Some of the guest operating systems that run under our hypervisor ended up getting hit the most by this, um, whereas physical hardware and other stuff, like it, it generally did better. Um, we had some other things that we basically put in place so that we overcompensated for the performance loss of Spectre. So if you go to things like the average guy, you notice, oh, there's no performance difference. In fact, it might be a little faster than the last time it went out there. Um, that's because we had other things held back that we did to overcompensate um, so that you're basically getting the performance that you paid for, right? Um, but, you know, this is a problem that everyone's looking at. So, you know, we had ways of doing it. Um, but for other people, it might be, you know, now I got to scale up another 10 instances to be able to do the same thing that I was doing before with 5,000 instances, right? So that was the wrong ratio. Uh, let me no, try but that I, again. I understand, no, but I understand, right? It's a, you're, you're going to have to, you know, it may, it may be 1.5, 1.25 right. times the amount of resources it took before to complete the same customer SLA that you might have or, you know, what, what what's there? Christian, if, for example, say Intel says, and they never will, but say they said, all right, we're replacing all the chips. Can you, could this physically, I mean, do they know one, do you know if they know what the hard, what, what the new architecture is going to take to fix this? Can it be just merely fixed in silicon and new chips be issued? And will chips in the future, I mean, you, you got to imagine something's going on at Intel or, or the rest of the chip manufacturers to go, oh, okay, we, we got to do something different. Um, yeah. Will they fix this in manufacturing in the future? And in theory, could I buy a new chip and replace it if that's what I wanted to do? Yeah. Um, a, lot of, a lot of questions there. Sorry. Yeah, no, the, they're all spot on questions that everyone is asking right now. Um, I think in the short term, um, the answer is going to be like, no, because I think it's going to take them a while to figure out what is the hardware change that fundamentally fixes our ability to do branch prediction in a way that um, is not vulnerable. And so 
they probably have some ideas on this now. Uh, but in terms of like testing CPU, like this is all going to be baked into the future design of chips that they probably have in beta right now. Right. So um, I would say expect a minimum of one to two years for them. You know, it's, if, if they have to move away from branch prediction as we know it today into something new, it could take longer. I, I don't see that necessarily happening. I mean, I, branch prediction, at least the concept of it, is definitely here to stay. It's just a question of how you do it securely. And so I think that's going to take a couple years to figure out in hardware, um, hence why this might always be kind of lingering over the industry for a while. Um, in terms of... Um, what was your other question? Uh, hardware, can they fix it? The future, you don't know. You just kind of said that it's going to take a while to get yeah. this done. With Spectre not being fixable then, so to right. speak, does that mean, so what does that mean? I mean, are we all vulnerable or? So it means that you're, you're theoretically vulnerable and the most you can do is put all these mitigation patches and BIOS firmware in the operating system, et cetera to reduce the likelihood, but um, it's unclear whether or not they are full mitigations. I think I think Intel and most of the big players in the business will claim they're full mitigations, but um, you can't really, I have not seen, nor has anyone else seen a true um, quantitative way of measuring, is this a full mitigation or not? Um, so what you're gonna see is a lot of work towards making the mitigations in software better, meaning how can we keep applying the same type of mitigation in a way that doesn't cripple the performance? So I think we'll get to a place where the mitigations cover, you know, 95 plus percent of the concerns with speculative execution and software, and then over time reduce and reduce the performance impacts that they have. Um, Humorously, Google, which also, um, you know, their research team found these disclosures in large part, but their cloud service also came up with this technique called RET plotline. And I haven't done much research into it yet, but they're saying they're having anywhere from 1% to 2% performance degradation, which is a lot smaller of a range than what most of the industry reported as the conceivable range. So, you know, Google both gives us the bad news and holds the, the, the miracle panacea remains to be seen, whether that makes it out to everything else and in what forms and what Intel Intel claims by the end of this week, uh, 90% of its um, CPUs will have patches out for it. And, and at first I thought, you know, um, they were referencing at first I thought they were referencing. We have, um, a way of fixing the unfixable. Now it's just some of the language and messaging going on there is adding more confusion to the fire than anything. Um, but I think what they're what they mean and what they're saying is they're pushing microcode to these BIOS updates to basically mitigate a lot of the concerns at the firmware level as opposed to the operating system level, and then hopefully we can back out some of the patches that were made in the operating system kernel to alleviate performance. That's how I'm reading into it. But again, um, I completely stand by all the research and analysis and the conversation we just had of like ultimately new hardware is the only way you 100% prevent this thing. So uh, we'll wait and see if Intel's messaging changes at all on this. Um, 
I'll be super, I'll be super blown away if they come up with some proof that they can show on the internet of how the patches they released this week truly cover a hundred percent of the speculative execution edge cases. So, you know, now that all these mitigations are in place, like twofold things, number one, um, I see, I see a world where just like with ransomware, a bunch of people don't bother to patch or pay attention to this. Um, because like you said, the news coverage was like super high for like a day or two. And then I think most people who weren't technical just kind of went off the radar map a little bit. And I think investors were kind of reinsured by some of the quick responses from industry. So they probably saw it as a non sequitur in many respects after a week. And so they're not looking at it big picture. Um, but I see two things here. Number one, one of these forms of vulnerabilities comes repackaged in a nice little script kitty way in six months time that looks like the next ransomware thing. Um, number two though, so that, that impacts a large scope of maybe consumer devices or whatever, but it's only for people who didn't bother to inform themselves. The second reality I see is even for the enterprises and organizations that are fully patched and fully, you know, did all the things they could do. If there's that five to 10% margin of error where the mitigation doesn't cover the spec of execution, it only takes an attacker getting lucky once to then, you know, get into a fortune 500 or God knows what else. Right. So um, I see kind of the, the larger surface area for people that don't patch. And I see the, the get lucky once scenario that could have equally damaging um, impacts. So um, yeah, like I said, comes fundamental at CPU security. Um, a lot of these um, processor technologies too have been super important to hypervisor design and to virtualization. And we run much of our computing resources in the world in virtualized environments. So um, this particularly hits very hard at that, but you know, modern inventions in computing like cloud computing take a super big hit like this. In terms of cybersecurity industry, we'll be talking about this for a couple of years time, I think easily. Um, and as far as the industry and the actual world of computing, like we've literally, this is the first security vulnerability that touches every single thing that's ever been made, which is a pretty hard feat to pull off. So um, all around pretty unbelievable when you think about it in terms of how we kicked off the new year. Yeah. We were, we were bound to get to this point at some point, I think in computing though, where, some fundamental flaw in the architecture just never we just never got there and and i think we can say and you know who knows uh, we don't have a team at google looking for this it may never have been found it could have just continued to gone on forever because there weren't enough resources to find it you know right. it's a, like you said it's a pretty sophisticated pretty difficult uh even coming up with uh with valid attacks may take a while do you think from an attack surface, from a from from that standpoint, are we at most risk? Is the average consumer at most risk in the browser, where an easy JavaScript executable can can do this fairly easily without yeah. without yeah. much trouble? Is that really? I mean, so we're gonna have to rely on antivirus that are watching mm. our browsers. Oh, it's funny you mentioned that because some of the patches that came out for Spectre were incompatible with antivirus software that was installed. So a bunch of people on Microsoft with certain CPUs had B-SODs and couldn't recover and the whole nine yards. But um, I think that's mostly been addressed. But basically, 
uh, with Meltdown, it definitely relies on that local privilege. So I'm not as concerned about seeing that get off into the wild. But with Spectre, yeah, absolutely. Like um, JavaScript, like super, super scares me that you can do it in JavaScript. Cause that's pretty much like that's a, that's like a, I mean, that's a pretty simple thing to do and not hard to fake or pull off to masses of people. Well, and worse, worse is, um, we, you know, we, I think a lot of people sit and think, oh, well, what's, what's really the chances that my browser interacts with this malicious JavaScript? You know, it's not like I'm going to go out there looking for malicious JavaScript. Well, no. Um, number one, um, I can't tell you the number of ads that are not properly getting vetted in in a whole bunch of mainline ad distributions that result in malware getting installed through JavaScript. Um, iPhone has been a classic example on Safari in particular, where, you know, I'll be browsing a website on my iPhone in Safari and all of a sudden I get the pop-up for congratulations, you won the iPhone X, et cetera. I clicked absolutely nothing. I'm on sites that I know and I trust, but the ads that come through those sites are hosed basically. Um, and so, you know, blocking those ads on my phone, uh, go check out AdGuard for iPhone. You'll thank yourself. Um, you know, are ways to stop that. But so, you know, one bad ad that has a, a specter-like thing in it scary. Um, Worse than that, and this is something that um, was pretty eye-opening when I first read about it, is this notion of... uh, So JavaScript is obviously used as a dependency in a lot of different web software, um, dependent applications. Heck, we even have this thing called Node.js, which is running an entire server in JavaScript. I know it sounds ridiculous because JavaScript was a client language and then we made it a server language. Um, But there's this interesting game one could play of trying to make this benign harmless package um, become a dependency on major open source software that people use. So like everyone thinks it's all benevolent and kind when you contribute this novel, unique functionality that a main developer doesn't want to spend the time re-implementing. But secretly the package manager, you know, source code you go and read as the guy getting ready to integrate it as a dependency, it all checks out. But meanwhile, the actual package manager that gets pulled in as a dependency has a completely different thing. Um, there's a lot of different ways that the TLDR here is there's a lot of different ways malicious JavaScript can end up being executed on your machine tomorrow. And very little of it could involve you actually doing anything. Yeah. And the average, <clears throat> the average guy just is screwed in that case. Like yeah, yeah. there's very little protection against that. And, and it can happen like you, you through ads. I mean, there's a, billion different ways javascript can be delivered it has become the way the the web moves yep. and it's just everywhere and you yep. can't block it wholesale because then everything stops working on the web exactly and so you're uh we we have some hey do i need to worry about my bios update as well am i gonna have to go to all my equipment and do yes. BIOS upgrades? so things you should do today um Number one, make sure you've received the latest out-of-band security updates for Windows update. If you're on any Windows platform, Windows 7, 8, 8.1, or 10, or Windows Server editions, make sure you receive the latest out-of-band security roll-up. Make sure it says that you have no new pending updates in, on your computer. That covers the ability for Microsoft to um, apply mitigations. 
um, with the server versions of Microsoft, you have to apply registry settings as well to enable the patch. And I believe in consumer, it just automatically patches. Um, so make sure you get all the security updates in it. And if you're a server IT professional, make sure you go to TechNet and read what registry edits you need to make to enable the patch on your server, on your hypervisors, et cetera. Um, number two, if you're on Linux or you're using a Linux host or um, or Linux server of any kind, make sure you go out and run your package manager, likely yum or apt-get, to get the latest kernel. So the um, the WordPress, or not the WordPress, um, the kernel updates that are happening um, have happened across CentOS. All the all the major flavors of Linux basically released the upgraded uh, mainline kernel that provides mitigations um, in the operating system. Um, if you're on a phone, make sure you're on iOS 11.2.2 and or Mac OS 10.13.2 and also look for the Safari fix, which mitigates the specter concern in that browser. Um, for desktop or server owners, Check with your manufacturer for BIOS updates that have been released to provide the mitigations and firmware for Spectre. Now, this is a very hit or miss thing because old motherboards are not, they're, they're, the manufacturer is not going to bother to go back and put these out of band updates. And What's old? Older motherboards is How usually old? anything older than three years. Okay. You Like five years is probably the outer fringe, but... Usually it's going to be anything within the last three years that ends up getting the firmware update in the BIOS. So um, just regardless of what, you know, whether where you are in that timeline, just go look up your motherboard model, go out and check and make sure you uh, have the latest BIOS that's available um, because they provide mitigations and microcode patches for that. Um, so those are pretty much the three things you need to go and do. Ken is asking in the chat room, uh, any links to a guide to patch systems correctly or any tools that will tell you if it's patched or not, you know, maybe yeah, that's, like check. that's right. So um, there's a tool for the windows server community. That is a PowerShell add-in that will show you the status of your operating systems patch level. It'll show you whether or not you have the windows update properly installed. It'll show you whether or not you have the mitigations properly turned on and it'll show you whether or not your BIOS actually supports the um, the firmware upgrade. So, uh, or I'm sorry, whether or not your BIOS actually has the firmware upgrade, so it can detect for those things. Um, I had the link in the show notes, and I also posted in our live chat here the link for the speculative execution um, PowerShell script. Now that's just for the Windows Server stuff. Um, for Linux. Um, if you own any Linux boxes or web hosting servers or whatever, run sudo yum update or sudo apt-get inst- uh, apt update to make sure that you pull in the latest kernel. Um, what's really important with all of these things, though, is keep in mind that because we're talking about you know fundamental operating system stuff that's changing, you got to reboot to make sure that the, the patches take place. So it's not enough to install the patch and then leave your computer running for six months like I do at a time. So reboot, reboot, reboot after you install those patches. Um, make sure you, in the case of Linux, load that new kernel, see the new kernel version, type in uname-a to see the new kernel version you've loaded. Um, 
for Windows, make sure that you reboot and it says there's no further updates to install, then you're good there. Um, you know, make sure you go out to your motherboard page, see if you, there's a new BIOS. If there is, flash it, reboot it, etc. Um, and for the phones, you know, phones pretty much force you to reboot when they do an update. So there's no real concern there. And both Android and Mac basically have the ability to both update the actual phone operating system and the firmware on your phone when those updates come in. So there's no real firmware concern from that standpoint. If you're going to get an update, it's going to pop in as an automatic update for your phone. Okay. Make sure things, I mean, it's going to be a busy weekend. Yeah. Busy week. (laughs) Uh, I think it's going to be. Is everything ready to be patched at this point or will there be more patches coming over the coming months? This is, yeah, more about a, a lot of the initial patches, I mean, have already been out. So within like the first day of disclosure, several, um, several, you know, prov- major enterprises had already started rolling out all their patches. Um, but I expect to see either revisions to patches um, from what's already been done, or you know, as Intel continues to come out with new mitigations and, and patches for microcode, like some of the patches are still basically making their way, so to speak. So I expect this type of patching game to go on for another couple of weeks. Um, but a lot of the stuff is already out there for you now to go and get a mitigation. And then we'll see if the mitigations get better over time or not. Yeah. Well, I think they're going to learn a lot through the process. And like they found this, there's probably a lot more things that this uncover. I, I don't, this may not be the end of the story. You yeah. Know, when we just, yeah. when we get down to this, when you get down to this, you know, we, we are down looking at the, you know, the, the we're inside the nuclear power plant and it's on fire yep. and it's, you know, and, and I think we've decided to put some concrete around it to try and keep it, you know, to kind of keep it isolated. But I think once we start getting in there, they're going to start finding some things that are like, mm, it's, it's a lot worse than we thought. Right. And, um, and I, you know, uh, once monetary gain can be uh, gained from this, there will be all kinds of creative people that show up with all kinds of ways to exploit this in some way. So yeah, I mean, and it could a, really rock. It could really rock the, I mean, if you can't trust, what if you can, what if we get to the point where you can't trust your CPU? You know, you're like, I mean, that's uh, the, that's the place we're in right now. We're in this place yeah. where it's a, the current trusted computing model is, well, we think we can trust it and that's not trusted computing. So, um, you know, essentially we're at a point where regardless of the short-term haggling with patches and mitigation this and mitigation that, the longer-term trend of we need to fundamentally figure out how to change CPU architecture to deal with this, um, that's not going away in a month, right? That is going to be a conversation and work for all the chipset manufacturers to do over the next couple of years. Um, So, you know, it has security, like I said, it, it hits the trifecta. It has security implications, it has performance implications, and it gets right at the foundations of when we talk about trusted and confidential computing. I mean, yikes, um, it's it slashes through all that. So a lot of the security models that we've built over the last 10 years have been based on assuming that these things work correctly. Um, so the fact that we just pulled the rug out on those assumptions um yeah that's that's a horse of a different color yeah it's it's actually the y2k problem 
real in re, you know in reality in, in a sense right with y2k though it was at the end of the day it was a lot of software that had to change right. Right. with this we're talking about hardware it's a right. in, in my estimation it's a different level of y2k in the sense that yeah there was a lot of fever pitch and and some of the fever pitch wasn't warranted but a lot of it definitely is because um this is something that is not a you know, Y2K, a bunch of developers get up and huddle around a corner and figure out how to make the memory space bigger so that when everything flows over to the year 2000, nothing dies. Um, you know, it's it's not nearly as trivial as something as a date counter and an injury overflow and what the security implications of something like that are. It's like literally, um, this is how your CPU works. These are the assumptions we've operated on uh, parallel computing for the last 20 years. Oh, guess what? They don't have the security assumptions that we told you they did. So yes, they're very performant and fast, but no, we can't give you 100% guarantee that it follows the security model that we've written RFCs and a whole gob of other documentation about for the last yeah. 20 years. Uh, imagine if they said, you know, you know that 250-bit encryption that we thought, no. Yeah, it's actually no. super. You could <laughs> breach it super easy. Yeah. Well, and I and I, kind of what I meant with the Y two K thing was that that was kind of overblown and overhyped, and we spent billions to to handle a problem that really probably didn't exist for the most part. I mean, it was there, but it, this is going to be. I mean, this is really there, and this is really going to be a problem. And I don't think we've seen the end of it. Um, from from what. I think we're going to start digging into that chip. How'd you like to be at Intel right now? Like yeah. the guys who started this, they're long gone. Like they're not, it's not like they've, I mean, those, those, I, I bet those Maybe. engineers, I bet those engineers are gone. I mean, some of the senior engineers and architects of this stuff, you'd be surprised how long yeah. they uh, roam around the halls. How'd you like to be them? That would be yeah. like, oh. How'd you like to be the senior tech fellow that, you know, came up with the early models of branch prediction? You're probably sitting there going, oh, shit. He just, he is, he or she has just disappeared. Yeah. It's like, where'd they go? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. They're, they're not here on the planet anymore. <laughs> well, gosh, it's good. Good overview, Christian, and a good uh, a good reminder. I think great um, uh, steps to take. Um, I, I just I do not look forward to having to check every single computer. The updates are easy. The BIOS updates are a lot harder, I think, for most people is to make sure their BIOS is updated. That that gets for some hardware that gets tricky. You know, it's, yeah. it's not as easy as going into your window settings and making oh, sure. I mean, and like for smaller shops too, like uh, doing the, doing the rolling firmware upgrades across devices that have slightly different BIOSes or motherboards, you know, if you're not running a consistent fleet or, you know, making yeah. sure you get the right BIOS on the right box, right. Uh, making sure your redundant power is in place. Like it's doing the rolling BIOS thing is like, yeah, regular enterprises can handle it. No problem. But um it's not necessarily uh, average guys flashing their bios generally scares me. Um, yeah. I, have, I, don't even, I don't even like to do it. I'm not a big I've, fan of it. Yeah, I have gobs of data points from biosmods.com on how this goes utterly wrong. So, yeah, um, yeah I'm not a big fan. I, I'm just, I'm kind of gripping right now thinking, oh God. All right. Well, and I had just, I've been doing some work on some plotting and I need those things to run for a while. And I'd shut down the windows. Now the security updates will make their way, but I had shut off the regular updates for windows. Cause I just don't want that freaking thing rebooting all the time. Damn. And I came home to one, which 
I don't know if they're, do you think they're forcing a reboot? Cause I came home to one that had been, uh, if it's windows 10, it's possible. Yeah. I don't it, think they can, it, they can't yeah. force a reboot on seven. I know that, but windows 10, they have ways of doing that. Yeah. I don't think it was a forced reboot, but, but certainly, um, I'm going to spend some time and I've been kind of spending some time, but I will probably turn those right back on and, it, it you know it's feature updates that I don't want to get. It'll it, you you can't stop the the security updates. So they will come. They will be fine. But I was just kind of like ah, I don't want to. I don't want this thing rebooting. I just I need it to run long periods of time, and I need predictability in the reboots. And um, so, but I think I'll probably get down to weekly. You know, Saturday afternoons. Re, you know, update, reboot everything. It'll be a good for at least a week, and I shouldn't have to worry about it at that point. So. Well, Christian, thanks again for all that research and all that work. Does that uh, does that play into all with what you do for uh, for a day job? Do you have to deal with any of this kind of stuff? Um, so, you know, at, at Amazon, obviously, we're one of the largest providers, or I'm sorry, one of the largest um, purchasers of Intel chips on the planet. So, um, <laughs> if you go take a look at the uh, Amazon, uh, the AWS. Um, news channel uh i think ec2 is what posted it but you can go look on the amazon channel basically um the company rolled out patches immediately um and and so all of our customers are protected and then we have um guidance for how people can patch their instances as well um but this is something that pretty much anyone who works in IT remotely, they were dealing with this this week in, in yeah. some shape or form. Yeah. Maybe not directly being involved in the patching or whatever, but being situationally aware. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I have been watching the Maple Grove instances coming up and down. Yeah. I have I have the robo whatever it is that tells yeah, yeah, me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, it's patched. So you and Gary have been at it. And so thanks for keeping us safe. Yeah, so we um, we would ideally want to do it in a world where there was zero downtime, um, but some of our hypervisors that we realized, oh, there's a BIOS update for this, and just the the cost the cost trade of doing the fail the live failover and waiting all that time and then pushing it back. It's like you know what, we just want our customers to be patched, and most of the customers on that box are going to accept five minutes worth of downtime, so seems like a pretty good cost trade for now we'd never do this in the enterprise but um i you know maple grove security comes first before everything else so yeah. I'm, I'm sorry yeah. we're, no. we're we're mostly failover complete but um like you said i'm one of those customers i'm those like times. just fix it yeah. take it down five minutes at the average guy.tv it's not going to break anybody's heart yeah. i'll be fine and uh so get them but but it's, it was interesting to see the patches or to see the up and down parts happening, I kind of know when you're doing maintenance. And yeah, I'm like, oh, okay, they're doing maintenance over there. So, so good job in keeping us safe. Um, Will, Will, if you have any questions, comments, contributions, you've got ideas for Christian things you want to have them cover in the future, send us an email. Jim at theaverageguy.tv. They should really go to Christian at Christian at theaverageguy.tv. He really sets the agenda here. I I do all that over at Home Gadget Geeks, but uh, he really sets the agenda. I'm just the stooge who shows up and does all the audio recording gets out there Christian does all that stuff. So uh, you can do that via email. Probably the best way, track us down on Twitter at Jake Paulson. Or we hope you enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully it was uh, beneficial. We'll stay around for a tiny bit of post show. It's a little late, so we won't uh, stay around too long. But that we'll say goodnight everybody. Good night. <laughs>